You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. I'll tell you, this is a book that often pastors avoid. I remember graduating from seminary and, and seeing certain books in the Bible that I thought, oh no, an expositor has to preach verse by verse through the Bible. I don't want to teach through these books in Revelation was one of them, but by God's grace and for his glory, we are marching verse by verse through this book. And so I wanna take a moment to just level the playing fields to kind of bring us to where we are. And so the stopwatch hasn't started for my sermon yet. So you don't look back there right now, but there is a stopwatch and it keeps me on point so that our kids ministry still has volunteers. Uh, But this is not the portion of my sermon. So this is the get us all to the same page. There's feedback that I've received over the last few weeks about Revelation. Uh, Some of it questions, some of it just uh, asking for clarification, some of it pushback, some of it criticism. And, And I want you to know that I welcome all of it. Because what it typically means is that you're wrestling with the truth of God's word. I praise God because I'm right there with you. We are wrestling with the ancient text to get to a place of understanding that is defensible not by a pastor or by a denomination or even by a a verse here and there, but by all of scripture. And so let's continue that wrestling. But three topics I want to address before we jump into the next chapter. The, The first one is... Uh, something that came out of a message I preached a few weeks ago, I, I shared with you that there are three primary models for interpreting the book of Revelation. The first one being preterist, which focuses on the details of Revelation primarily being past events. And then there's the futurist model. You you can imagine what that is. That is the model that interprets Revelation as though the details are future events. They're they're all in the future. They're primarily going to be contained in the seven years of tribulation with a Revelation 20,000 years of reigning of Christ and his saints on the earth. That's the futurist model. And then there's a third model with which I was not very familiar until I started studying this book, and that is the recapitulation model. So here's the topic. Be careful when you search on Google. So I've had some feedback that they were concerned that I was teaching a model that was taught by Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, and and I thought, Irenaeus? I've never heard of that in all of my studies of recapitulation. And Irenaeus taught a recapitulation theory of atonement. That's different than the recapitulation model of interpreting Revelation. So when you go out and you search in Google, just be aware that you've got to do a little bit more digging and you might want to ask some questions. So that just hopefully at least allows us to level the playing field there. The second topic is the topic of symbolism. So I know some of you probably hold a similar position to Revelation as I did in the past. And that is that unless Revelation uses a phrase like just as or like or with the appearance of, if it doesn't use one of those phrases, then we are to understand what John says literally. And that's the position that I have held for many, many years. But as I've studied through the Bible, as I've preached so many books of the New Testament and some of the Old, what I've come to the conclusion of is that typically prophecy is symbolic. 
There are prophecies that are literal, and we learn that by looking at the rest of Scripture and by looking at the context and looking at history itself. But the majority of prophecy, especially prophecy about the big plan that God has for all of history, and especially at how he completes that plan, the majority of that prophecy is to be understood symbolically. And the details are intended to symbolically teach spiritual truths. And so I want you to know I, know I do take the Bible literally where, where I think the Bible takes itself literally. But as I've studied Genesis to Revelation, I, I've, I've leaned more toward the fact that prophecy and especially big picture and the completion of redemptive history is to be taken symbolically and not literally. So I'll have 12 more chapters to either see if that's solidified or if I change. The third topic is the topic of why does God give us signs and why does he tell us that we should use those signs to be able to know the days and the seasons? Jesus said that to the religious leaders. He said, you can see the clouds and you can predict the weather, but you can't predict the the signs and the seasons. In Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Jesus shared some signs about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and about the future completion of redemptive history. And he gave signs and encouraged the disciples to understand based on those signs. And then Paul picks that up in Romans 13 to say that we should be seeing the signs and then understand the seasons. And here's what I would say about that. I don't think Jesus or the authors of the New Testament are saying that we need to be looking for the sun to go dark. I don't think they're saying that we need to look for the moon to turn to red. I don't think they're saying we should search YouTube to see is the saline content of the Dead Sea becoming more fresh. I, I don't think that's the point. I think the point of these signs is to remind us of the kairos in which we find ourselves. That's a, that's a Greek term that describes seasons. Chronos is more specific to 24-hour periods, weeks, months, things that can be identified on calendars. Jesus and the authors of the New Testament are looking more at the kairos. They're looking more at the seasons. And I think what Jesus is saying is that as suffering happens, as persecution happens, as the temple is destroyed, I want you to understand the season in which you find yourself. The season is Mark 1, 14 and 15. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus wants us to understand he has ushered in the kingdom. It is already but not yet. He is over all. He is administrating authority, all of the details of the patterns of our lives and our lifetime and the future. He wants us to understand that's the season in Kairos. So as we see tsunamis, as we see earthquakes, as we see the church being persecuted, as we see the the suffering that we experience in life because of sin, understand it's the Kairos of the kingdom of God already but not yet. It's not really for us to be looking more at calendar events and weeks and months and predicting when things are going to happen. So those are my three topics, and now the stopwatch can start. Let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the wrestling of this ancient text, a text that is so different than the other 26 books of the New Testament, and perhaps that is the reason why it's so difficult for us to understand it. And yet, it is so similar to Old Testament prophecies like Daniel and Ezekiel, and so we thank you for that. 
We thank you that we do have evidence of how to interpret Revelation through other books of the Bible. And I pray that as we are wrestling with this and potentially our, our models are being threatened or challenged, that, that we would do the work, that we would engage, that the defense of our position would not be a pastor or a denomination or a book series, but it would be the fruit of our own labor in your word because there is great reward when we labor in your word. So we are gonna labor this morning in a very difficult chapter. And I pray that you would bring forth fruit and reward so that we can better know you. We can better know ourselves and we can better know your plan for redemptive history so that we can focus more on Christ and be able to conquer and endure whatever our life faces. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Revelation 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can reach in the seats in front of you. Find Revelation 10 on page 1033. And I will read this chapter, and perhaps you will be able to see very quickly why I wanted to avoid it. Revelation 10, beginning in verse 1, the apostle John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire and he had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But... That the mystery of God in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And all God's people said, what in the world? Where we find ourselves in chapter 10 is, I think, similar to where we found ourselves in chapter 7. In chapter 7, the six seals had been unpacked, and there were six judgments and patterns of judgments that God was pouring out on the world. And chapter 7 was an intermission, an opportunity for John and the seven churches and for us, the readers, to take a breath. And then the seventh seal was broken, and then six trumpets were blown, and six judgments and patterns of those. And and I believe, as I've been studying Revelation, that this was the same judgments of the six seals just now given from a different angle. But now, as we have completed 
the six trumpets, we arrive at another opportunity to take a breath, another opportunity for John and the seven churches and us as readers to breathe and to be able to see exactly what we need. When Sally and I were in Romania the last time, and we are, Lord willing, going to be going again this summer, we decided to be brave because it was our fourth and fifth times to visit that amazing city. And we ventured out on our own in the evening. And in a city of three million people where the language is not English, it was challenging. And I was grateful to have in my pocket a smartphone with an international plan and a GPS. Because all I had to say is, hey, Siri, I need help to say the name of our hotel. And we were given turn-by-turn directions. We had what we needed to get where we needed to go. And I think that's the point of Revelation 10. Look at the big idea in your notes. This intermission lets us get our bearings for where we are today. This is for us today, just as it was for the seven churches of Asia. But it's not just for us today. It's also the assurance that we have and need for the future. So four encouragements from the text. Number one, be encouraged, the lion roars. Be encouraged, the lion roars. It says in verse one that John saw another mighty angel. As you read God's word, I hope you're asking questions of the text. And maybe you ask this question. Why does John describe the angel as mighty? Because after all, aren't all angels mighty. Well, it seems to be a description of a unique strata of angels. The other reference to a mighty angel was back in chapter 5 and verse 2. And if you're like me, I want to know who this angel is. When you look at the description, and we'll look in more detail, some scholars believe this is Christ himself. But when you look at Revelation and you see Christ described, he's never described as an angel. And later on in this text, this angel will swear by the one who created the earth, land, the earth, sea, and the sky. And when you look at Colossians 1, the God who does that is described as Jesus himself. So I think we can say that this angel is not Jesus himself, but he's described in Christ-like terms. Another option is that this is the angel of the Old Testament, described as the angel of the Lord. And I've long held that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Christ. And I think there's arguments for that. And some passages provide details that would make that a valid conclusion. But let me give you some in Judges that I think might be why John is describing this angel the way that he does. Judges 2, 1 through 3. Judges 5, 23. And Judges 6, 8 through 11. I think when we draw from this Old Testament context, I think the point of this description is less about who he is and more importantly, what he does. And the angel of the Lord in those judges' passages provided a prophetic authority to commission another prophet. And I think that's why John describes him the way that he does. And we'll see in verses 8 through 11 that he is commissioning prophets. So what is the imagery? Well, the imagery communicates clearly divine authority. Look at verse 1. He set his feet on the sea and the feet on the land. That's actually verse 2. 
What I don't think he's describing here is an actual angel who's actually standing on land and on sea. I think what he's describing here is the scope of authority that he represents. Feet in the Bible describe authority. Kings would place their feet on the necks of their enemy to show their authority. I think what he's describing here is the expanse of authority that this angel represents. There is nothing on this earth that is outside the authority of God. That is to be an encouragement. This angel's face shined like the sun, just as Jesus did in Revelation 1. This is communicating the majesty and the glories and the brilliance of Christ. This is the representative of Christ himself. But then he also uses Old Testament Exodus imagery, and that's appropriate because remember back in Revelation 9, the six trumpets drew from the plagues of Egypt. The the sixth trumpet reminded us of the rebellious heart of Pharaoh, that as God gave Pharaoh all of these chances to see God's judgment pour out, it was actually for Pharaoh to respond in repentance and in submission to God, and yet Pharaoh hardened his heart. And as we look at the sixth seal, you see that as creation is given opportunities through the judgments to see God's judgment and to respond in repentance and submission, the creation and the Wicked humans harden their neck just like Pharaoh. So it's appropriate that John uses these descriptions. Look at what he says. He says that he was wrapped in a cloud, but then quickly he also says his legs were like pillars of what? Fire. Do you remember anything in the Old Testament where there was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire? And I think that's what John is doing. I think John is using this Old Testament imagery to draw the reader's attention to what that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire did. That pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire led the people of Israel out of bondage of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness and all of the trials and tribulations that they experienced in the wilderness. And it, it took them to the new world, to the land of promise, to the land that was intended to be a land of rest. I think John is using this imagery to describe that God and his representative here is sharing details and sharing instruction that is helping the people of God as the patterns of God's judgment, as the patterns of corruption, as the patterns of suffering and persecution continue to play out in the church age. God is leading his people. God is leading his church through trials and tribulation out of the slavery of the bondage of their own sin to the new world, which is the what we sang about today, New Jerusalem. Then he uses another Old Testament description. He says that there was a rainbow over his head. And we saw the rainbow in Revelation 4 describing the glory of God, but I think because of its proximity to the descriptions of cloud and fire, I think this is drawing the reader's attention to the rainbow that demonstrated God's covenant love to Noah. And so here are all of these descriptions drawing the reader's attention to the Old Testament, to the character of God, to the extent of his authority. But look, look at verse 3. This is what I want us to, to focus on. Then he called with a loud voice like a lion roaring. I tried to sound like a lion there. <laughs> I think that's important and would have drawn the reader's attention to just a few chapters earlier. 
where John describes Jesus as the Lion of Judah. I did a little research on lions this week, and I found that male lions typically roar at night. And as best as we can tell, they roar to mark their territories. And I think that's great imagery that draws us into the encouragement of these first few verses, these descriptions of the angel that as God's representative of the Lion of Judah, this angel is demonstrating the master's majesty, that he is administrating authoritatively the events of church history that his scope of authority is the land and the sea, and as the lion, he is declaring his authority is so. Let that be an encouragement to us. The lion is roaring. But second of all, second encouragement is be encouraged. The, the limits are on purpose. Verse 3 says that in response to the roaring sound that sounded like a lion, there were seven thunders that sounded. Man, I wish I knew what these were. The scripture doesn't tell us what these were, but we can go throughout scripture to be able to see where thunder is associated with God. Here are some examples. Thunder is often associated with divine presence. You can go back to chapter four and verse five of Revelation. You can go to Exodus 19, 16 on Mount Sinai where thunders and lightnings that were associated with God's presence. Thunders are also associated with the divine voice. You can write down John. Chapter 12 and verse 29, Jesus called out to the Father and said, glorify yourself. And the Father responded by saying, I have glorified myself and I will continue to glorify myself. And the people heard the voice, but it sounded to them as what? It's thunder. There's also thunder associated with divine judgment, Exodus 9, 23, and the plagues of Egypt. So we don't know what the seven thunders are because of the phrase that's about to follow, but we also might draw from Second Temple literature. Second Temple literature is not intended to be authoritative, but it helps us understand the history of Israel, how the authors of the New Testament might have been thinking, and how the audience would have been thinking, and some Second Temple literature refers to uh, the thunder of God to describe blessings and curses of God on earth. So we don't know what exactly these thunders are, although we can say with pretty strong authority that these were likely judgments that God intended to pour out on the wicked so that they would repent. This is similar to Daniel 12. There's a revelation given by God to Daniel that Daniel himself did not understand, the text tells us, but John seems to understand this similar revelation. In fact, look at verse for it says, I was about to write what I heard. It seems like he understands. He understands what the seven thunders are. And he's doing what he had done for, for nine chapters. He's getting ready to write down exactly what we need to know so that we can understand God's point of this revelation. But a voice tells him, seal it up and do not write. Nuts. We love to have details, don't we? And typically, we do two extremes with details. On one side, we want to know all the details. This is why entertainment magazines exist. You want to know what Brad Pitt does in the summer for vacation? This magazine will tell you. I don't know why I picked Brad Pitt. I did in first service. I wanted to be consistent. 
That's also why when there's a tragedy like there was in Nashville, we're, we're drawn to want to know, aren't we? What was the motivation? What were the details behind it? How are the families doing? We, we long to know details. But then the other extreme is that we can take conclusions from limited details and think that we're experts. Remember my mom growing up loved Princess Diana books. And they were everywhere in the house. But the temptation was is that if you just looked at a few pictures and saw what Princess Diana did, that you knew Diana. Both extremes exist in our human nature when it comes to details, and I think both tempt us when it comes to the revelation of God and his word. I think sometimes we can come to God's word and we can want the details so much that when we don't have the answers, we can just throw up our hands and we can, we can just get so frustrated. Listen to this quote by Vern Poitras. We must be content to trust God in the midst of our partial knowledge, confident that he knows everything and governs everything for our benefit in his glory. What a statement. Friends, there's plenty in the Bible that God does not fully reveal. Judges is a book that I wish there were more instruction and application details, especially the last few chapters. I mean, it is a mess. I wish that God would say, okay, I'm giving you these details because of this. It seems like it would be so much easier. But I think what God does in limiting the details is get us to a place where we can just be faithful and trust in him. But then there's another side of the coin. I think we throw the Deuteronomy 29, 29 card on the field too quickly. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is the secret things belong to our God. I hear this with people when they talk about predestination. And they'll say, well, when you go through heaven, there's a gate. And on the front it says, whosoever will may come. And on the back it says, those whom he loved, he predestined. God will figure it out in the end. I think that's throwing the Deuteronomy 29, 29 card on the table too quickly. God intends for us to take the information that he gives us, to wrestle with it, to engage with it, to marinate in it. Here's a quote by James Hamilton. The fact that we don't know everything doesn't mean we don't know anything. God has given us revelation. And I think sometimes what we tend to do, beloved, is take the teaching of a favorite pastor or a book series, and we draw from that to defend our position on revelation or God or scripture. We take somebody like John MacArthur, an incredible preacher. We take somebody like R.C. Sproul, an incredible theologian. And we take what they say and we use that as the defense of our positions. We use what they say or a left behind series to defend our position on revelation. But beloved, God gives us the limits on purpose so that we study, so that we engage. And my question to you is, are you engaging with this series? By now, and I got evidence of that in between services, some of your models and traditions have been challenged. Positions that you thought that I held personally on Revelation are now looking very different. Some of you might have a little spinning mode that you're in right now. 
Some of you might have the position of my arms are folded, I know what I believe, and I don't care, you're not going to move me. But you're missing out. Here's a quote. So many, either because of loyalty to a teacher or denomination or the realization that digging takes work, and it does. Which, by the way, friends, I've heard people say that it's impossible to continue to ascend, uh, attend ascend unless you're highly educated or you have a deep knowledge of the scripture. And that, that's not true. And I know passages like this and messages like this may tempt you to think that, but friend, every week is an opportunity for you to grow. Every week is an opportunity for you to get one more tool. Every week is an opportunity for me to do the same. And we, we spend a lifetime building and laying foundations and, and adding tools to our toolbox so that our, our clarity and our ability to understand becomes sharper and sharper and sharper. And, and then we'll look back in a lifetime and say, wow, how much has God revealed to us about himself, about ourselves, about his redemptive history? Let's partner together on that. But we miss out, beloved, on the reward of a more accurate understanding or a more biblically defensible conviction by not engaging. I had a friend come up that I've known him since the beginning of our church. We've wrestled through a lot of things together and he came to me this morning and said, man, I'm struggling with your position. And he knows enough about the models to know where I'm leaning. And I said, brother, praise God for that. That means you're engaging. That means you're gonna ask me questions that are gonna either move me back to another position or going to deepen my conviction. That's the beauty of wrestling with the text. That's the beauty with engaging. But it does take work. We aren't intended to be spoon-fed. We're not intended to be Cliff's Notes Christians. So friends, let's engage. Let's continue to take notes. Let's continue to ask questions. And and so as I've done that, the the end of verse 6 has rewarded me, I think. Verse 6, it says, so that there will be no more delay. So the question is, what does that mean? What does the no more delay mean? And where I'm concluding is that it means this, that the patterns of sin, the patterns of corruption, the judgment, the persecution, they will continue throughout the church age. Friends, we as Christians experience the ramifications of the corrupted fallen world, don't we? If you don't agree, just look at my head. I used to have action figure hair. This is the effect uh, of the fallen world. We experience the effect and the ramifications of God's judgment, but we don't experience as Christians the spiritual ramifications of the judgment. The judgment that God is pouring out on the earth has a penal or a punishing value. We as Christians, by God's grace, don't have to experience that because someone did it for us, and that's Christ. So I think what God is saying here is, listen, there will be a point that as we look around at all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the tears, all of the death, all of the injustice, all of the political shenanigans that are going on in our world today, it will come to an end. And when God has decided this is it, it will not delay. Be encouraged. The limits are on purpose. We must engage and we must content. be content to know some details are hidden. Number three, be encouraged. The layout will be complete. And friends, I would submit to you, verse seven is one of the most encouraging verses in all of scripture. Verse seven is a 
scripture to underline. In fact, if you're only going to gain anything from one verse in this study, gain it from verse 7. But, for those of you who have studied the Greek, this is the word Allah. This is an emphatic contrast. There's a Greek term that is a contrast, but it doesn't just jump off the page. This one does. And the contrast is the ambiguity of the delay and the timing with what is certain. And what is certain is in verse 7. In the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Hallelujah. Well, you say, well, what does that mean? Well, we sang about the mystery. The mystery takes center stage in the New Testament. Here's some verses and some concepts that are just simply found in Ephesians and Colossians, but it's all over the New Testament. Mysteries including Christ. Do you know that Christ is a mystery? Remember this, and if you're new to ascend, this is the way I describe the Old Testament. The Old Testament is people writing about the furniture in the room of redemptive history with the lights really low. So the Old Testament is describing the same furniture that the New Testament authors describe, but the lights are down really low. And so they're talking about Israel. They're actually talking about Messiah. They talk about branch man in Zechariah. They talk about the roots that will come from the stump of Jesse. They talk about the blessing from the offsprings of Abraham. They talk about all of the furniture. It's all there, but the lights are down really low. And then Christ comes on the scene, and boom, the dimmer comes up. And then the authors of the New Testament get more revelation, and then boom, the lights come up. And the mystery of God is revealed in Christ in the New Testament. The people of God, that was a mystery that the Old Testament didn't understand. That there are no horizontal limits to the people of God. There's no language. There's no ethnicity. There's no gender. There's no political status. There's no economic status. There's no limitations to the gospel. Same furniture, New Testament, boom, we see it. It's a mystery. Christ in the church. Man, how cool is that? And Ephesians 5 says the, the greatest image that we had of this was a man and a woman in marriage. But now you understand that's actually a shadow of the substance that is Christ in the church. Mystery revealed. And then the mystery of the Christ in us, the hope of glory. I mean, there's mysteries all over in the New Testament. And I think what John is saying in Revelation 10:7 is that all of these mysteries, which are the fullness of the plan of God, will come to completion. That's what the word fulfillment means. And so Ephesians 3:9 and Colossians 1:26 says, This is the mystery hidden for the ages, God's plan for redemptive history. Oh, I love that. Remember the early days of planning for this building. The guy that we ended up using as our architect was a friend of mine. And I remember when we had bought this land, he, he took a map that we printed out and he put onion paper over the top. Does anybody know what onion paper is? <laughs> Only a couple of you. Onion paper is nearly transparent paper. So that you can take what's underneath and you can draw over the top of it. And so he did that with our land. And he said, what do you want the auditorium to look like? Well, this. And so he drew it out. What do you want the kids' ministry to look like? What do you want the workflow? And so he drew that. He drew out a layout. 
And then as the, the, the process continued, there were more layouts, more details. There was elevation plans. There was system layouts. There was networking and computers. And oh, 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 oh. That's from Home Improvement with Tim Allen. You'll have to Google that. You, that's safe. You can Google that. It's the same thing that happened with the Bible. And look at what he says, the last, last phrase. He, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, to, 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 to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, there will be an offspring that will bruise the serpent's head. To, to Noah in Genesis 9, that I'm making a covenant that I will never destroy the earth in this same way. To, to Abraham in Genesis 12.3, that I'm making you a father of many nations and all the nations will be blessed. To David in 2 Samuel 7, where your son will one day sit on the throne, an everlasting throne, and we know that's more than Solomon. That's Jesus himself. And it goes on to Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 56 and Daniel 7. And boom, this is awesome. Servants. But all of this was intended to put Christ at the center. Write down Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. In times and seasons past, God spoke to us through his prophets. But in these days, he's spoken to us through Christ. Oh, the layout. The layout will be complete. Be encouraged by that. Number four, be encouraged. The labor is equipped. The labor is equipped. There's a human interest image in verse 8. But I just think it's interesting for us to consider. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel. Remember what this angel is? And if, 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 if we don't, the voice reminds us in verse 8, oh yeah, the one that's standing on the sea and the land. I want you to take that scroll from his hand. I, I just, I think that's funny. And he does. And there are actions that are described here. And I think the instructions of the actions are intended to draw the reader's attention to the labor. Look at verse 8. Go, take it, eat it. And all of this is intended to draw attention to the fact that John has a responsibility to labor. Remember growing up, my grandpas and my dad used to use a phrase that I'm sure you've heard before. And that is this. It's important to have the right tools for the job. Have you ever heard that? And man, as I, as I was starting out, remember I had hand-me-down tools. And I'm trying to, you know, hang pictures with hand-me-down tools that are rusted and our marriage suffered for it. <laughs> but, but as you get older, what, what ends up happening and as you, you have more resources, you can start to get a drill that has an LED light on it that has magnetic bits. Glory to God. And this is the game changer, a, a, a yard-long leveler that has these sliding holes where you can actually make the, that has saved our marriage, metaphorically speaking. The right tools for the job have moved marriage challenges to, thank you, honey, it looks great. And I think that's the imagery that these last verses of this challenging chapter communicate. Here, here's the labor summed up in verse 11. And I was told you must again prophesy. 
See, I think this is the imagery all the way back in verses 1 and 3. Remember we talked about that, how that kind of draws the reader's attention back to Judges, the prophetic mission of an angel to commission a prophet. John is at this intermission. He's enjoying the breath, the rest, and he's now being reminded, no, 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 you've got to go again prophesy. And as we've studied the book of Revelation, we know that the seven churches are tasked with, again, prophesying. So therefore, beloved, you and me are tasked with, again, prophesying. But then look at the next phrase. It's actually more literally translated, prophesy against. Prophesy against many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And I don't know about you, that's a bitter endeavor. Remember, the, 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 the voice said, that, or the angel said that you must eat the scroll and it will be sweet, but then it's going to turn bitter. The message of the cross is bitter to those who are perishing. And so when you share the gospel with someone, don't be surprised when the response is bitter. All you have to do is go out to social media and, and make a post that is in alignment with God's timeless design for marriage, for gender and sexuality, and see whether or not the majority of the responses are sweet or bitter. The, the truth of God's word to those who are perishing is bitter, and, and the angel is preparing John and the seven churches and us for that by saying you must again prophesy against many peoples and nations and languages and kings. But that's not all, is it? But the taste is also what? What does the text say? It's also sweet. Why is that a helpful reminder? Because, beloved, the goal of the bitterness of the gospel is the sweet transformation of the gospel. See, I think sometimes what we do is we, we, we think the goal on a social media post is to prove that we're right. We, we think that the goal of debating a teacher or, or a coworker or, or a neighbor is to prove that Christians are right. That's not the goal. The goal is gospel transformation. And so what John is saying is, look, you still have opportunity. These, these wicked people who at the, the end of the sixth seal are rebelling against Christ, the people who are persecuting you, even the kings and authority that are making horrible legislation in our country and across the world, there's still hope because of the sweetness of the gospel. And at the epicenter of all of this is the tool that we need, beloved, and that is this little scroll. I have to tell you, I don't know what the little, little scroll is. I don't know if it's the scroll of the six seal or the seven seals. I don't know if it's the book of Revelation. I don't know if it's all of Revelation, but that's not the point. Because again, remember, I, I don't think the point of prophecy is, okay, how big is the book? How does he digest ancient papyrus? What about the wax of the seals? It's not the point. And I can tell you it's not the point because of the Old Testament imagery. R write this down, please. E Ezekiel 2, 9 through chapter 3, 3. Ezekiel was told to eat a little scroll. It would be sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Jeremiah was told to eat a scroll. It would be sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. I don't think the point is the details of a literal scroll 
that would literally taste like honey, that would literally make his stomach bitter. I think this is the prophetic exercise of teaching, studying, understanding, and living out God's timeless word. That is the tool, beloved, for the purpose of transforming and converting the nations. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Oh, I'm glad this chapter is done. <laughs> but I pray, listen, you, you might say, well, I, I disagree, and that's, that's fine. But, but, but use the, all of Scripture to defend your position. Engage with it. But, but I hope at least what has been clear is what the conclusions I've landed on and, and how I got there. And to the degree that they are accurate, may they accomplish what the point of this text is, and that is exalt Christ. Encourage his people. Convict unbelievers to surrender to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that last part is where I want to start. Friend, as you hear this and you hear about God's plan for redemptive history, as you hear about the character of God that is put on display, as you hear about the, the nature of man, are, are you at a place where you're beginning to understand, and even though maybe it's hard for you, do you at least acknowledge that God is holy, that he expects moral perfection from you, and that you and I fall eternally short? Have you come to a place where you're dissatisfied by what the world offers? Everything that the world offers, position, possessions, popularity. It only delivers so much, but then it fades and it leaves you feeling empty. And are you finally at a place where you acknowledge that and, and realize that that's the way it's supposed to be? God didn't design us to be satisfied by anything that the world has to offer. He designed us to be satisfied by only what he offers, and that is a relationship through Christ. Have you gotten to a place where you, you own that and believe it? Have you come to a place where you realize that relationship can only be accomplished, not by religion or by anything you can do, but instead by you trusting in the completed work of Christ, you ask him to forgive your sins and you surrender your life to him, you will be saved. If you haven't, would you do that right now? There's members of our prayer team that are at the ends of the stage. They'd love to talk with you, to point you with how you can grow in your newfound faith in Christ. Maybe you still have questions. They'd love to be able to help you with that. And then friend, if you have been Transformed. Has this chapter encouraged you by the fact that the lion roars, by the fact that the limits are on purpose, by the fact that the layout will be complete and that the labor is equipped? Are, are you encouraged by this intermission? Maybe there's an opportunity for you to find a subject that needs to be recalibrated, to find a discipline that needs to be restarted, or find a place of awe from Christ that you haven't had for a while. Whatever it is, would you use this time as we close our service to not let the learning just stay intellectual. Beloved, what is your so that? What have you learned so that you think differently, you speak differently, you live differently, so that Christ will be more magnified through you, so that Christ will be more reflected through you, so that everybody that you come in contact with see the reflection of Christ first, your hope of glory. 
Father, I thank you for a chapter that is difficult, especially on the surface. This massive angel descriptions that are difficult for us to immediately understand. And I pray that the preaching of your word has been faithful to the text. I pray that while there is room for disagreement, that the positions I've landed on have been communicated with clarity and with charity. And would you, through your Holy Spirit, cause your word to return to you after having accomplished its intended purpose for all who are listening to the glory of Christ, I pray. And all God's people said, amen.